John chapter 5, I'm going to read the first nine verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. I've entitled my teaching today, Spirit-Led Ministry. Spirit-Led Ministry. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here in your house and to worship you and to open your word and to fellowship with like-minded brothers. And we pray, God, that you would guide us and help us, that you would guard our hearts, that you would open the mind and the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we might see you afresh today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your mercies are new with every morning. Your compassions, they fail not. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you for a fresh dose of your mercies today. We love you, Lord. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, as Joe alluded to um, a moment ago, our church was not a typical Calvary chapel in that we were not, I was not sent out by another Calvary chapel. We, we became engrafted into the Calvary vine. Um, 31 years ago when uh, we started our church, and I'll make a very long story short, but uh, there were a few families that had already gathered, and they called me to be the first pastor, and there were 18 charter members who voted uh, unanimously. I was glad that that's the only time there's been unanimity in our church since. But <laughs> that was uh, 31 years ago, and I accepted that call and immediately wondered after I'd accepted that call, what in the world have I done? Uh, my wife and I had been married only a couple of years. We had uh, uh, only our first child at the time. He was barely one year old. Uh, I had never pastored a church. I hadn't graduated from Bible college. I would years later. Uh, I, I never went to seminary, and as I mentioned a moment ago, and I'm a recovering Methodist. Like, you put all that together, and it's like, what in the world am I doing? I have no idea. I knew I didn't want to be Methodist. And, you know, look, I'm thankful for my heritage, but at the same time, you know, a lot of denominations have gone very liberal. And so I knew that immediately. I didn't want to go that route. I also didn't want to be a part of a denominational structure where, at least in the Methodist church, they moved the pastor around frequently. I wanted longevity. I wanted somewhere I could put my roots down. I wanted to be able to invest in the flock, and I wanted to be able to see a little bit of fruit this side of heaven if possible. And at the same time, I also believed not just in longevity, but in accountability and in credibility. I wanted I wanted a network of some people that were like-minded. I wanted somebody to hold my credentials to ordain me. So, you know, all of these things put together around this time when we had uh, just been a part of this startup church, uh, a friend of mine who was a pastor in the area who pastored at Calvary, who happens to be on staff with me now, um, Jimmy O'Keefe gave me the video of Venture in Faith and uh, said, you know, watch this, maybe the affiliation with Calvary is something that would connect with you. Well, I mean, I'd grown up. I got saved when I was 15, and I grew up listening to the radio. I remember, you know, listening to Chuck and listening to Rawl and listening to Greg. And, you know, I cut my teeth, spiritually speaking, on their ministry. So it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't a, a leap for me at all. Uh, and so the Calvary Chapel fit was a perfect fit for me and for, for our young church. Uh, and so I remember going to these conferences even before I was officially affiliated with Calvary. And, and uh, years ago, 
For those of you who are new, you may not uh, know this, but years ago, Chuck um, was very instrumental in helping to restore David Hawking after David had a moral failure in ministry. And, um, and Chuck got a lot of heat for it at the time, too, uh, you know, because not everybody wants to see somebody restored, unfortunately. And, um, and so, so Chuck took David under his wings for a season and ministered to him. And, and at one of the conferences, Chuck stood up and he said, all right, David is at a place now where I want to start to give him opportunities. So if any of you, if any of you fellas would, would like to have him at your church, you know, and, and so he said, he, he welcome to uh, invite David to your church. So um, as, as a young startup church, uh, I went to David. I said, hey, come to a, our first men's conference. We had about 30 or 40 guys there, and David came out. And uh, after the conference was over, I drove him back to the hotel, and he and he said, come, come into the hotel. I want to make a phone call with you. So he called Chuck, and uh, he just, this is the simple conversation. He says, Chuck, there's a guy here I'm with, Gary Hamrick. He needs Calvary. Calvary needs him. And he hands the phone to me, and I take the phone, and Chuck goes, Gary, welcome aboard. That was it. <laughs> that was it. You know, it's a little, a little more detailed now, but... Uh, and I filled out one piece of paper, and, and I was good to go. And uh, I'm telling you, the affiliation, the accountability, the credibility, all of it has been just one of the most wonderful and precious relationships um, that I could have ever imagined. Um, I, I tell you this background only because, again, when I started Cornerstone uh, Chapel, I had no idea what to do. I felt ill-equipped. I felt undereducated. I felt alone. Uh, no one had mentored me in ministry. I'd, I'd come to these conferences. Don McClure would get up and he'd talk about oh, how, how all the influence of Chuck Smith in his life and how Alan Redpath mentored him. And he'd be like, Smith and Redpath, Smith and Redpath, Smith and Redpath. And I'd be sitting there with envy and I'm thinking, and what's he going to tell me next? That he played ball with Spurgeon and D.L. Moody? You know, and I just like. <laughs> Wrong century? Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> and I can tell you that at the time I didn't understand what I understand now, which is the inadequacy that I felt in ministry and the inability to really do what God had called me to do was actually a gift from God because it forced me to my knees. It forced a greater dependence on the Lord. It caused me to seek His face in ways that I may never have if I'd gone a different route. Now, that isn't to say that if you go a different route and you go to Bible college and you, and, and you, and you manage to survive cemetery, I mean seminary, and you, uh, you know, and you go into a ministry and, and God uses you, that's fine, whatever path God takes you. But for me, my story is that those things became actually a gift. That, that inadequacy, that inability, that, that sense of what am I doing, and I have no idea what I'm doing, and it, and it just and it anchored me. You know, um, this is many of our stories. This is what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, when he said, For you see your calling, brother, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and, he, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord." Remember Acts 4.13, too, when Peter and John were hauled before the Jewish ruling council. And what they noticed about these guys was that they were uneducated, untrained men, but that they had been with Jesus. That's what made a difference in their lives and in their ministries. And so early in my ministry, this passage from John chapter 5 spoke to me in ways that were, was probably the most impactful. And, um, 
It was most impactful for one simple reason. Because Jesus demonstrates here in, in this encounter with this lame man, Jesus demonstrates how to have a spirit-led ministry by what he did, listen, and also by what he did not do in this story. Now, the scene of this story, of course, is Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has gone there, it says, for one of the feasts. It doesn't really name which of the particular feasts. We can assume it was one of the three major feasts for which every Jewish man was required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate, either Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacle, but it doesn't specifically say. It just says he was there in Jerusalem for one of the feasts. And we learn more specifically that this story takes place not just in Jerusalem, but within the old, what we would call the old city, uh, and it takes place near the Sheep Gate. It says it right here in the passage. Now, the Sheep Gate was located on the northern wall of the old city, and it was the gate through which uh, men would bring their sheep for sacrifice uh, at, the, at the temple of the Lord. And there near the Sheep Gate, there is this pool called Bethesda or Bethsaida, two Hebrew words, Beth Zaida, meaning house of mercy. I don't think it's coincidental that the guy who's going to experience mercy is going to receive it from the lamb near the sheep gate. I mean, all of this is just beautiful typology here that will meet and join together in this, in this guy's life. And so, so here is the scene. Now, the first time I went to Israel, uh, I was amazed at how large the Pool of Bethesda is. They haven't even uncovered the whole thing. It stretches out underneath the Arab quarter, so they, they haven't even unearthed all of it. I expected to see like a, just a small, like kiddie pool, you know, something small and shallow. No, 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 this, this thing, this thing stretches far and wide. I mean, it's, it's larger than an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And so the size of this thing demands an understanding of the scene because it says that a great number, a, a multitude of the lame and the sick and the paralyzed and the diseased used to lie around this pool. So don't, don't picture some small little, you know, eight by ten pool. You know, picture an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Now think, think of the scene where you have dozens, perhaps hundreds of people around an Olympic-sized swimming pool. This is massive. And so the crowd here that is gathered here is massive. A great multitude, a great number used to lie there who were blind and lame and paralyzed. And verse 4 says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, this seems a little peculiar to us. Uh, the idea that an angel would come down and stir up the waters and, and people would jump in and, and get healed and then Apparently, another group would cycle in, and they would repeat the process, and there's no indication here how often this happened. We don't know if it was random. We don't know if it was timed. We don't know, you know, how sporadic it was, uh, but, but it seems a little mystical when we read this. You're like, an angel came down, stirred at the waters. People jumped in, and they were healed. I mean, this, this sounds, you know, a little odd, you know, but, you know, don't think of it like how sometimes Catholics say they see the image of Mary in a grilled cheese sandwich, okay? It's not like that. It might sound mystical to us, but uh, don't dismiss it, because I think it's very possible that God could have stirred these waters for the unique purpose of healing large masses of people out of His compassion and love for the sick and the lame. I mean, think about it. You know, God can choose to heal through a variety of means and methods. I mean, He told Naaman to go dip in the Jordan seven times. That was kind of unconventional. He didn't even want to do it at first. He told the Israelites to look at the bronze snake that Moses had lifted up on the pole to heal them from the poisonous snake bites that they had gotten because of their rebellion against the Lord. He, he told Isaiah to lay some figs on Hezekiah's boil that he might recover. So I think that it's possible that God was gracious here. It was His gracious provision for sick people in that day. But remember, when you read something like this, not every practice in the Bible is supposed to be a pattern. 
Not every practice is necessarily a pattern. Just because God may have uniquely healed people in this way doesn't mean that we, you know, go out and start First Church of the Healing Waters uh, or, or to stand at the community pool and pray, God, send your angel and stir the waters here. And, you know, I, I, we, we need to be, you know, biblical with patterns and, you know, not make patterns out of practices that aren't necessarily there. Uh, so I, I'll pray for the sick, John, uh, rather James chapter 5, the anointing of oil, you pray for the sick, you know, I'll do that according to the Bible. I don't go slapping fig newtons on them, you know what I'm saying to you? It's like, okay, well, that was a unique thing that happened there, uh, but you, you don't always necessarily end up doing such a thing. And so whatever you may think about the pool itself, clearly something was happening here to make people stay and to trample down one another in order to get into the water. Somebody was getting healed. Otherwise, there wouldn't be sick people lying around the pool day after day and week after week and year after year. They would all just go home. Well, among this great throng of people, you have this unnamed guy, this guy who has been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know what his infirmity is, but it's debilitating enough that he can't get into the water by himself. Every time he tries, everybody else elbows him to get in the water first. Can you imagine how frustrating and hopeless that would be when people are just, you know, stampeding over one another and pushing you out of the way to get their healing, and here this guy is time after time trying to get in on this healing, and he can't can't get into the water. And verse 6 says that Jesus sees him lying there and asks him a question. And the question that he asks him is, do you want to be made well? Do you know that there are some people who don't want to be made well? They would rather hold a grudge than to forgive. They would rather play the victim than overlook an offense. They would rather gossip and have people think that they're in the know than to keep their mouth shut. They would rather see you suffer than to be merciful. There's a lot of people who don't want to be made well. Remember years ago, uh, I got a phone call from an elder at a church not too far from us, and there had been a a moral failure with the pastor there, and he called me and he said, would you arbitrate, would you come to our church and arbitrate a church meeting? We want to have a congregational meeting about all this. And I said, well, tell me the purpose. And he said, well, we just want a place where we can vent, and we want that pastor right there where we can vent all over him. And I said, all right, let me ask you a question. Are you interested at all in helping him? Are you interested at all in getting help for him? Are you interested at all in perhaps even restoring him, maybe not there, but at some other place down the road, if in fact that that is something that that God wants to do? He said to me unequivocally, no, we're we're not interested in any of that. I said, well, then no thank you. I'm not going to come. Some people just want to stay sick. They don't want to be made well. We like being angry, and we don't want anybody to help us. We like being bitter. We don't want anybody to help us. We like being gossips, and we don't want to be corrected. Some people are just like that. Now, not this guy. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And in verses 7 and 8, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Isn't this beautiful here? This man met mercy at the sheep gate because he encountered the lamb. Now, Jesus just spoke the word, and this guy was healed. And here's the thing about this story that really impacted me, and still does every time I read this. Again, Olympic-sized swimming pool, picture dozens, I think perhaps even hundreds of people. When you have a pool that big, and it says a great multitude of all these sick people, diseased, paralyzed, you name it, they are there. Dozens, if not hundreds, of sick, lame, diseased people who would be lying around this pool. Now listen, notice what happens here. And Jesus stepped over all of them to go to the one to whom the Father directed him. That is very challenging. 
all of these sick and lame people. Jesus could have spoken the word, and all of them could have been healed in that moment. But see, he was laser-focused to do the will of the Father, and so he stepped over others to go to the one man to whom the Father had directed him. And you couple that with what Jesus said in John 12, 49, when he said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And you think about Jesus' ministry, and we know this, but it is important for us to be reminded that Jesus didn't do anything or say anything except that the Father directed him. He was that tuned in to the Spirit and the will of the Father that He didn't do anything or say anything unless it was the will of the Father. And I thought to myself, what would ministry look like if I tried to operate that way? What would ministry look like if we were so constantly tuned into the Spirit that we only did the things and said the things that He told us. I mean, our wives would certainly be happy if we were to do that. We're only going to do the things, say the things that Jesus tells us. You say, well, I'm not sure that's realistic. I mean, this is Jesus, and, you know, we're not going to be able to live up to that standard. Okay, well, you know, just stop, because shouldn't we always be aiming to live up to the standard of Jesus? And shouldn't our goal and our prayer be to emulate Him in every way? Shouldn't we be constantly praying, Lord, put a guard over the door of my mouth? I only want to say what you tell me to say. Shouldn't we be constantly praying, Lord, direct my steps? I only want to go where you tell me to go. Shouldn't we constantly be praying, Lord, teach me your word so that I can only teach what you want me to teach? And let me tell you, just be prepared, because when you start praying prayers like that, Lord, I don't even want to go where you tell me to go. I don't even want to say what you tell me to say. I don't even want to teach what you tell me to teach. I don't even want to minister to the person you tell me to minister to. When you start praying prayers like that, number one, first, it'll be very uncomfortable for a while, and number two, you're going to make a lot of people mad. You're going to make a lot of people mad. I started to realize just how much I did in ministry because it was kind of the expected thing of pastors. And a lot of times what we end up doing, because we think it's the expected things of pastors, is in the end really just wanting to please people. So we're wanting to be that pastor that everybody has an expectation of. The problem is you can never live up to that. And so when you try to live up to that, you're you're ultimately trying to please people instead of really pleasing God. You're more concerned about what people are thinking than you really are thinking about what God thinks about the whole matter. And early on, I, I realized a few things, you know, like, Number one, I can't meet every human need, okay? Human need is a bottomless pit. It is a bottomless pit. For, for us, it's called job security, but it's a bottomless pit. <laughs> so number one, I realized human need is a bottomless pit that I cannot meet, only God can. And number two, I began to realize I'm not the best equipped to minister to some people in certain ways. You know, there are, there are other gifted people who have other and better gifts than I do who can do a better job. So, like, why do I think that, first of all, I can minister to every human need because I can't, number two, that I'm equipped to really be the person who can do that after all? You know, I became painfully aware of you know, just, you know, I'm not well-equipped for certain things. You got you to be honest about your own giftings and abilities and inabilities. And early on, I became aware, like, man, I do not have a counseling gift. I just don't. I am not a good, you know, listener in terms of like, you know, I mean, I, there would be people sitting in my office, and, and they would be, you know, weeping and pouring out their hearts, and, I, and I, inside I'd think to myself, you know, I, I need to hire somebody who would actually care. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? I'm just, you know, being off. I got to hire somebody who actually cares. I'd have, some, I'd have somebody, some lady in my office going, I've been married five times, five times, and every single one of those guys was lousy, stinking alcoholics. And I'd be sitting there thinking, lady, you've been in my office five minutes already. I feel tempted to drink. You know what I'm saying to you? Just... <laughs> That's miserable. 
And then, and then one of the worst things in counseling, and you guys know this too from doing it, it's like you, get, you, you can have back-to-back appointments where you have somebody come into your office and they're like, I just found out I have liver cancer, my wife left me, and I lost my job. And you're just like, oh, this is horrible. And then the next person comes in and like, you know, my daughter lost her cat. Can you pray with me? My, my cat's lost. Like, dear, your cat's going to hell anyway. You know, why do I really care? There's none of that in heaven. There's none of that. So I, I'm like, I, I can't do this counseling thing. That was one of the first positions I hired, and, and, uh, and thankfully so. The people were relieved too, let me tell you. But we have to have this kind of spirit-led ministry. It's just like, okay, Lord, what can I do and what I can't do? Bring around me people who are better gifted in those areas than I am because together the body of Christ will function collectively like that, corporately like that, and, um, and just seek His face. So in the course of trying to understand, okay, what is a Spirit-led ministry and what does this look like? There are four main things that I constantly pray for to try to keep me, you know, within the guardrails. The first is a balanced life, a balanced life. If I'm going to have a Spirit-led ministry, my life has to be in balance. And one of the biggest challenges in ministry has always been for me to this day is keeping a balance in my life uh, because ministry is a, it's a people profession, and, and people can suck the life out of you. By the time you go home, you don't have much to offer your wife or your kids. Somebody said to me years ago, and I don't remember who it was, but somebody said to me, there are going to be times that after a long day, you need to take the long drive home. I only live like five, six, seven minutes from the church, and um, there, there are times that my drive home is like 20 minutes because I'm going to take the circuitous route in order to have time to pray, kind of decompress, so that I have something to offer when I step through the door of my home. I, I can't say I've always done it well. There are times I came home when the kids were little. Terry and I have three kids. They're all grown now. They're all in the ministry. Praise God. They're all serving on staff with us at Cornerstone. And two of my boys are, are here. Um, and, um, and when they were little, sometimes I'd just come in the door and feel like I don't have much to offer. That balance can be hard. Because on top of the people you love in your life, you still have all the regular stuff that don't go away. There's always bills to pay. There's the, mow, the lawn to mow. The car needs to be inspected. Something needs to be painted or fixed. And it's like this constant tug on your life to get it out of balance. We have to work hard at this. We have to work hard to take time to keep it balanced. And it begins, of course, with our own personal time with the Lord and to carve out that time, whatever works for you. You know, for me, I'm, I'm kind of an early riser. I'm kind of a night owl too. So, you know, I, but for me, you know, just setting the, the day, trying to get in the Word in the morning, having some time to pray, just clearing my mind and getting my heart right with the Lord. And, and uh, I can't say I do it every day. There are times where, like you, and just, okay, now the appointment, I'm rushing out the door and if not at the beginning of the day, at some part of the day, because I, I have to stay close to Him or else, or else I'll have nothing to offer. We, we cannot minister out of the emptiness of the well. We, we have to be filled with Him so that we can minister out of the overflow. And in addition, you, you have to make time for your family. It's, it is important in keeping a balanced life you know, when, when our kids were little, I, I made every effort I could to get to their ball games and be there for practices. And sometimes I'd be working on my sermon on the sideline, but I'd glance up every while, you know, every once in a while, wave, and just to let them know that I was there and cheering them on. And, but they need our time. Our wives need our time. Our kids need our time. It's not enough to say, well, it's, it's, the, it's the quality of time. No, it's, it's, it really needs to be the quantity. 
And, and you, you, you cannot invest yourselves in people in the church who will not be there next year. But you'll always have your kids, and you'll always have your wife, and so you need to invest in them. You know, there, there are people that you will pour countless hours into at church, and then they just up and leave. And, and, and you know, like, yes, there's some brothers laughing over here. You know what I'm talking about. And it's just like… Uh, why are we pouring ourselves into people who won't even probably be there next year? As much as we should be focused on making sure part of the balance of our lives is investing in our own family. Uh, I, you know, as I mentioned, our kids are grown now. We have five grandkids, so we're empty nesters. And, and, uh, and I just had a, a serious conversation with my wife a couple of months ago. We just, um, uh, our church just bought a school. We bought a private school because, uh, as you've been following all this mess in Loudoun County, uh, Tanner Cross goes to our church, and the lawsuits have come out of three teachers from our church suing the Loudoun County School Board because they passed this transgender policy, this policy 8040, which, which uh, allows children to name whatever gender they want to be. So they can decide to be whatever gender they want to be, and students are forced to refer to them by that chosen pronoun, and teachers are forced. Now, think about this forced speech in the United States of America. You are forced to acknowledge the gender choice of the student and, oh, here, by the way, and parents have no right in the say of what their child does in terms of their gender identity. And so that, this is when Tanner Cross gets up and, and you know, and he, I didn't even know he went to our church. When I found out, we got him up in front of our church and he just basically said, hey, I'm a believer, I follow Jesus, and I'm not going to lie to a student and and I, I cannot uh, dishonor God by lying to a student. Um, I'm going to honor God's uh, beautiful design and, and their biology. And he was put on administrative leave for saying that. Yeah. Well, praise God. But so, so the Loudoun County School Board put him on administrative leave because he was a teacher. He was a PE teacher in Loudoun County Public School when he made that comment at a public hearing inviting public comments. And so Alliance Defending Freedom, Mike Ferris, uh, the president and CEO, was an elder at my church, and so they sued, and they, they won. He got his job back. But now the policy is still enforced, and so three teachers from our church is joining a lawsuit to get them to, to revoke the policy. Anyway, long story short, um, we, you know, we didn't want to just complain. We, we wanted to do something about it. We, we had uh, people signing petitions in the atrium of our church to recall the school board members. And uh, um, it's one thing to talk about what the problems are, but it's another thing, how can we do something about it? So, um, so our church bought a private school on 90 acres in Middleburg, Virginia, to, and we're going to launch a, a private Christian school in the fall of 23. But I, so I said to my wife, as part of like this balance of schedule, balance of life, I said to her, okay, look, because she's totally on board, we need, we need a Christian school, we need an alternative. Um, and by the way when I announced that we were going to open up a Christian school, the school, the facility itself can only hold about 600 students. Within five hours, I had 1,650 students pre-registered. By, by the end of the week, by the end of the week, we had over 2,500 students pre-registered, and I had over 450 applications from teachers wanting jobs, and I didn't even ask for any teachers to submit. So I said... So I... So I said to my wife, I said, uh, you know, this is going to require a little bit of extra time. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, but we just had the dialogue about that. I, I just say, you know, look, because now, now I've got to select leadership, and, and praise God, we just recently hired a, a, uh, a head of school, and, um, and, and I've and I got to take some time to set this up. We've got to get the foundation right. I've got to get the right leadership in here. And <clears throat> so she was all on board and said, yeah, I get it. And, you know, that's what I said, like the next six months to a year, I, are you okay with this? And, and so, you know, we've had to navigate that. So my, my point is, even in your family life, there are times when things come up. Well, just talk it through, pray it through, discuss it, make sure you keep your life balanced, and, and spend that time with the Lord. You know, I'm always challenged by the passage in Mark chapter 1, because it tells us how Jesus ministered to everyone in Capernaum, everyone who was sick and demon-possessed. It was like an, an all-day and all-night prayer meeting and, and healing service. And Mark 1, 32 and 35 says that at evening when the sun had set, 
they brought to him, to Jesus, all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. The whole city. And then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, now think about this. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Like Jesus just gets through ministering to the entire town all night long. But instead of saying, wow, that was a, that was a long prayer meeting, I'm going to sleep in in the morning, he gets up early before sunrise and goes out to a solitary place where he prays. They couldn't even find him. They had to go searching for him. This is how much we need our own quiet and private time with the Lord to keep our lives balanced. So number one, a balanced life. Number two is a discerning spirit. In order to have a spirit-led ministry, we have to have a discerning spirit. I can't tell you how much discernment has saved me time, effort, and energy in in ministry to, to be able to cut through the nonsense or the enemy or whatever it might be and just discern what's really going on here I have found it to be the most helpful thing in ministry. Remember in the encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well in John chapter 4? And um, there they are having this dialogue. Uh, she's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. And, and um, they're talking about water, and they're talking about the well, and, you know, he doesn't have a ladle. And so in this conversation that they're having, all of a sudden Jesus asks this question that seems to be out of left field. It's not. But he looks at her and he, and he says, go call your husband. Like they're talking about water and well and ladles and stuff, but out of nowhere, Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, that's right. The fact of the matter is you've been married five times and the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband. And it penetrates the whole conversation, cuts to the chase and gets right to the heart of the matter. See, the, the, the heart of the matter was the problem of her heart. And so all of this chit-chat about the water and well and ladles is really not doing anything. We need to get to the heart of the matter. And so he asks this question that gets to the core of the real issue here with this woman. That's what we need in ministry. Now, we can spend so much time spinning wheels and chasing, you know, rabbit trails and trying to figure this out and figure that out. And what we really need is a fresh dose of discernment. God, give me discernment, a discerning spirit. It'll save me time, effort, energy. It'll help me not make as many mistakes. Like, give me discernment so I can, like, figure out what's really going on here. I remember years ago on one of our trips to Israel, uh, we had a lady on the trip who was not a part of our church, and she was a friend of someone who did go to our church, and uh, she, she, was, she was giving us grief. I mean, the whole time, just complaining about this, complaining about that, complaining about this. Now, all I knew about her was that she was a friend of people on the tour group and that she was a widow, that her husband had died. I didn't know anything else about her life. But she kept complaining over and over again. And I'd have people, you know, like make little side comments to me like, you know, she's really ruining our trip. And, you know, like we paid some money and she's griping and complaining and whining about this and whining about that. And you know, I was, I was afraid they were going to want to reenact Luke chapter 4 and drive her off the brow of the hill, you know, and I just, why, why don't you play Jesus? We'll play the crowd. Go ahead. Stand there. So, like, I got to intervene here. I got to do something. So, one night, we're at the hotel, and right after dinner, uh, I pulled her aside in the lobby area, and we, there was some, you know, a lounge area in the front lobby of the hotel, and I, and I said, can I, can I just sit with you over here and let's just talk some things through? And, and so she sat down. She's like, why do you want to talk to me? I said, please, please. They're going to push you off the brow of a hill. You better come sit with me. So she, she sits down with me, and I said, I just, I just kind of want to know a little bit about your life. She goes, why do you want to know about my life? I mean, it was seriously one of those conversations. And I'm just sitting there. And so in one of these moments, I'm like, Lord, give me, a, give me a discerning spirit right here. Like, help me understand. And the story from John chapter 4 popped right into my head, his conversation with the woman at the well. And in a similar way, this is the question that, uh, or the thought that the Lord put in my heart. So this is what I asked her. I said, we're, we're like 20 seconds into the conversation. And I say, tell me something about your husband. 
And she looked at me, she says, why do you want to know about my husband? I said, please, just indulge me. I just want to get to know you. Tell me something about your husband. She says to me, well, my husband was a federal judge, and we lived a wonderful life. I love him dearly. And she said, we live out on a farm. And he was up on a ladder with a chainsaw, and he was cutting a heavy branch. The branch knocked him down off the ladder to the ground and killed him. And she looked at me and she said, and today is the anniversary of his death. I said, now I know. And she said to me, you know, I know I've been cantankerous and fussy this whole trip. And she says, you have to forgive me. And I said, you have? What? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, but I, I said, can I pray with you? I prayed with her. She started to weep. I started to weep. I didn't even know her. didn't even know her husband. But in that moment, I was like, God, thank you for meeting us here. The rest of that trip, she was an angel. And people who didn't even know what I knew about her story because they could see her change of countenance and demeanor, they just started loving on her. They just started ministering to her. The rest of the trip was wonderful. We need that discernment, though, to cut through stuff, to understand, God, what are you up to here? What do you want us to do? What do you want us not to do? You know, where are you leading? Where are you closing a door? What do you want us to start? What do you want us to stop? I mean, all these things that we're constantly praying through and thinking about in the course of ministry. Who do you want me to minister to? Who do you not want me to minister to? All of this, God, give me a discerning spirit. So number one, a balanced life. Number two, discerning spirit. Number three, a pure heart. I don't say this to sound dramatic. I say this because I honestly believe it. The biggest threat to my ministry is me. I know, I know we're all aware, you know, the flesh, the world, the devil, all three of those things work in concert against us. I get that. And the enemy works overtime. I get that. The world is bombarding us. I get that. But I think the greatest threat to our ministry is ourselves. I'll never forget years ago uh, listening to, to Damien Kyle at one of these conferences. And uh, Damon said... Um, I'm always aware. If you don't know Damien, you, don't, you can't appreciate this. I'm not doing a very good one. I am just one. Well, this is serious, so I'll say it seriously. He said, I, I'm always aware that I'm just one bad decision away from losing it all. One bad decision away from losing it all. So we have to be wise about our weak spots. And we have to work hard at reining those things in, protecting ourselves, putting in safeguards, making sure that we're not putting ourselves into places of temptation. You know, all of our offices at Cornerstone have glass slabs on the side of the door or in the door itself. Um, we rarely counsel women at all. We have other women who will do counseling for women. Um, we're never in a car alone with a woman uh, unless she's related to us. Um, we have to put in safeguards. We have to be wise about our flesh. But Jeremiah told us, God through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully evil above all things. Who can know it? So we have to be mindful of the fact that my own heart can deceive me. I can't get too sure of myself. I have to recognize my own weaknesses. Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life and doctrine closely. The last thing I think is important for us to keep in mind, number one, balanced life, two, discerning spirit, three, a pure heart, number four is a thick skin. If you're going to lead a spirit-led ministry, you have to have a thick skin. People are really, I think, one of the most rewarding things about ministry 
And people are one of the most irritating things about ministry. I learned early on, here's a principle, and this is going to help some of you, going to set some of you free. I learned early on, you ready for this? Sheep bite. Okay? Sheep bite. I used to look at those wonderful pictures of Jesus with the shepherd's staff and, you know, woolly white creatures on his shoulder. And like, isn't that wonderful? I've come to realize that shepherd's staff is not for keeping away wolves and lions. It's for keeping away the sheep who bite like a ninja. Because they will try to destroy you if given a chance. They will complain about things. They will criticize you about things. They will whine about things. I get it. I didn't have to be in ministry too long. I got, I understood why Moses took a staff and beat that rock. I get it. And if you don't get it, you haven't been in ministry that long. That's why you don't get it. But look, people, people will be that way. And, and on a serious note, remember what, what Paul said to the Ephesian elders from Miletus when he said in Acts chapter 20, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, right, our own purity, And all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, no shepherd, uh, or rather to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. What is is he saying there to the Ephesian elders? He's saying, listen, there's going to be problems from without, savage wolves coming on the outside, in, and there's going to be problems from within. And they're going to try to draw away disciples after themselves. There's going to be this divisive... um, dangerous element that you have to be aware of, that we always have to recognize. People outside the church, people inside the church, and you have to have a thick skin. If you, if you take things personally, you won't survive long in the ministry. People will come and people will go, and people will leave for good reasons, and people will leave for no reason at all. You, you just decide you're going to part your hair differently, and some people are like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Like, like, and and, it, and, it's, and it, can be, it can be hurtful sometimes. You know, I mean, I, I, I can remember there was a family in our church, and uh, their daughter was dying of brain cancer. And I would go there about once a week and pray with them and sit by her bedside. And, and uh, they, they asked me near the end, can you offer her communion? She could barely swallow anymore. And I was actually afraid to give her the elements because I thought she, she'll choke on this. And, and they said, no, 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 go ahead. And she received communion, and, and I did her funeral. Within a month, they were gone from our church, and they never said why. They never left a note. They never communicated anything. And there are times where people come, people go. You can't take it personally. You don't always know. Um, people will say things that are cruel and critical. Um, People will email you. Um, People will write you letters. Uh, I I mean, I'm not kidding. Not a day goes by. I mean, the more more our ministries kind of, you know, spread because of COVID and things have gone more online, and and now people across the country are watching, um, that's wonderful. But that also means I get more emails and more letters from people who don't like stuff that I say. And, you know, I always remember Chuck saying something. If you, you get a letter and, uh, and there's no return address or it's not signed, you know, you can just look at it immediately. And Chuck would always say, it goes into the round filing cabinet. You know, I just don't even read it because you can't even respond to it. They don't even have their name. There's so many things that can happen in the course of ministry where if you're not careful, you can just start to become calloused in your heart. And instead of getting a calloused heart, I remember Chuck Swindoll once saying, God, give me thick skin and a tender heart. Give me thick skin and a tender heart. Because, Lord, this is, this is your work. This is your ministry. Lead me to the people you want me to minister to. 
bring them that you are calling me to pastor and let me be spirit-led through a balanced life, a discerning spirit, a pure heart, and thick skin. I'd only been pastoring Cornerstone about seven years, and I had what I would call not a crisis of faith, but I had a crisis of ministry. People backstabbing and a couple staff. I just had a few on staff at the time who were saying things to me and about me, and I was just like, done. And uh, there's a guy in our church who is the brother-in-law of Harry Presley, and Harry contacted Joe and said, Gary needs, needs some help. And so Joe picked up a phone and called me. I didn't ask him to. He just called me. Invited me up here. I came up. I had lunch with him and Jerry. And I'm not emotional because of what happened. I'm emotional because this man showed me love. I'll never forget it, Joe. I thank you for that took me to lunch and prayed with me. Man, I felt like quitting. He said, you go back. He said, Some God, sometimes God gives you those blessed subtractions. <laughs> and he'll take care of the people who don't need to be there. You just hang in there. That was 23 years ago. I'm so thankful for the Lord's calling, and I pray that all of us would strive to seek Him in a way that we lead, led by the Spirit. We love, led by the Spirit. We minister, led by the Spirit, so that He can get all the glory. Would you stand with me? I want to pray a prayer over us out of Psalm 143. This is a Psalm of David. Just a few verses from Psalm 143. Let this be our prayer. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. For I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. In Jesus' name, amen.